the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Right now, I wanted to bring back our good friend, Professor Donald Siegel. He's the uh, Foundation Professor of Public Policy and Management, Director of the School of Public Affairs right here at ASU. He sent me a piece earlier today that he uh, co-authored on the importance of reopening our schools. I can't believe it's August 11th, and so many parents still don't know exactly what is to be with their children. Professor Siegel, welcome back. Thank you, sir. Thanks for joining us and sending me your piece. And thanks for the reminder. You know, something I've been talking about really since the middle of March, when we close schools, we not only are doing it in the name of protecting a population that is negatively affected, no, not, not affected by a virus. We're, we're closing schools to protect them from something that won't hit them, not any more than anything else has every other year. Um, but we are doing incalculable damage across a whole range of sectors people aren't beginning to think about. You think about it in your piece. Talk to us about the importance of opening schools. Well, first is the damage that's been done to our children. Uh, we referred to it in a previous essay, and we, I mean, uh, David Waldman is my co-author. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's also a professor yep. at Arizona State. And uh, we referred to this as child abuse, mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that our children have been taking part, as we have, in this grand unethical social experiment, which is based on these series of non-pharmaceutical interventions. And the first of those was the closing of the schools. So our, school, our children have been out of school since March. This is so deviant, Seth. You know, I think back to the great... Um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan once wrote an essay. Uh, He was a liberal senator, actually, a Democrat senator from New York. But he was a thoughtful guy, and he was aware of what was going on in the world. And he wrote an essay called Defining Deviancy Down. And he was referring to crime in the inner city and how deviant behavior was now considered normal. Well, we have engaged in a series of deviant acts, and the most, in my opinion, the most deviant act that we've engaged in is keeping our students out of school. And, of course, not only out of school, but museums are closed, public libraries are closed, lots of facilities that our children uh, use have been closed since March. Now, why is this deviant? It's not just deviant because it's destroying their childhood. And preventing their economic, you know, their uh, educational and social development. It's also deviant, Seth, because remember during the Clinton years, every single policy intervention was justified on the grounds of doing it for the children. Right. 
you know, we always sacrifice for our children. And that was the impulse that we were engaging in, which is a normal one. But now we're actually asking our children to sacrifice for older people who are more in danger, uh, you know, of the virus. And we're sacrificing the young. Even kindergartners (laughs) are being sacrificed for older people. It's, It's deviant. It's a great and point. It's no, it's a great point because that was the line of thinking and, in fact, mocked yeah. sometimes. You know, well, you say for the children you can affect almost any policy, but we're now say, saying it's for the adults and we're hurting the children, harming the children for the adults. What makes it especially deviant to me, uh, Professor Siegel, is you think about adults differently than you think about policies for children in the sense that, you know, if you have a policy against me or against you, I think we're roughly in the same decade of of years here, um, you know, we can make it up. We have time to deal with it. But those childhood years, whether you're talking pre-adolescence, adolescence adolescence, or uh, uh, peri-post-adolescence, these are years you cannot make up for in the emotional in the mental, in the intellectual, in the social development of the children, what is going on with the teen brain and the teen and and the teen anthropology and sociology, much less the adolescent pre-adolescent, is something you can't make up for later. You miss this, and we've now put them through six months of trauma on this score. You don't have makeup. You can't fix it. You can't return to it. You can't make up for it in later years. This is permanent damage we're affecting. What may happen to you or me in this thing? You know, it's not permanent damage, hopefully. But with a child, it is. It totally is, and it's really harmful for two types of children. Those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, poor kids, who live in in cramped conditions, in blighted neighborhoods, who are really truly victims of the digital divide. Mm -hmm. They don't have their own computers. That's right. right. They don't have high-speed Internet. Uh, And then you have special needs and autistic kids who who need schools for uh, social development Mm -hmm. and for services that Mm -hmm. are provided. But especially for poor kids, schools, public libraries, public parks, these are refuges. For these, from the turmoil and the chaos and the potential abuse that many of them experience at home. Uh, so it, these stay-at-home orders that we have for our kids are severely limiting, as you said, uh, not just their access to these facilities, but all the kinds of social services that they get, the, the counseling, the extracurricular activities, and, of course, the education. Yeah. Because there's no substitute for in-person education. I was uh, uh, online is not a substitute for in-person education, especially for early childhood education. Right, and I was I was referencing um, a statement that was put out by the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services. She is a trained psychiatrist as well as a um, as well as a uh, as a, tra- a trained uh, uh, trained lawyer. Eileen McCann-Gantz, and she she said a couple months ago, I want everyone to remember that not every home is a safe home. Not every individual can withstand the trauma of not seeing or interacting physically with loved ones. Not every parent can survive the mental anguish of not being able to feed their children because of lost employment, and not every child can exist in a healthy way in those kinds of households without the support and structure of school and friends. The effects of all of these things, Don, education may be the least of them. 
teaching children how to behave, how to learn, putting them in safe places when they don't necessarily have a safe place to go after school, after school programs, other, 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 um, other activities. All of this is permanently damaging. The absence of all of this is permanently, permanently damaging. To save what? To save what? In the name of teachers who are marching in teachers' unions as if this is the deployment of missiles in Eastern Europe in 1983 with body bags and with skeletons well, imposing it's fear, a level of fear on this community. I, I am just amazed to have seen from a community that once upon a time told us they were essential. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you and I know that I don't believe in this totalitarian taxonomy of essential versus non-essential. But educational institutions have been designated by our governor as essential. And I walk, I'm at work every day, and I walk down the street, and I see construction workers out on the street. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of huge construction projects downtown. There's a lot of people working physically at work, providing in-person uh, work uh, every single day in the supermarkets and in, in, in healthcare establishments in, in a lot of different places because they're essential workers. Yep. yep. And they can't, they're not saying, well, I want to do my work online. Right. I mean, I don't want to get in trouble with your wife, but if a nail salon can be open, a school can be open. Uh, that seems plausible it, it seems plausible right i mean i yeah, know i know this is these are important. I, I said yeah. your wife but i mean this i know this is important to, to women that these salons are yes. open of course it is it's well important i think that's that why schools... even the head of the cdc has been quoted as saying that the health risks of keeping schools closed exceeds those of opening absolutely because he knows he and this is an infectious disease expert not not just a public health official, because we know that there's all kinds of detrimental effects of keeping kids and teenagers out of uh, out of school. That would be, of course, suicide, neglect, undetected child abuse, delayed learning. But the the um, the, the most prevalent um, cause of death for for people under the age of 25 is suicide. Yep, that's right. That's right, and you're seeing. And, and you think this is doing good? No, no. And what's for, in, what's interesting is it's really hard to get these stats. But when you look at the local papers and various communities, you are seeing them reporting higher suicide rates, higher substance abuse rates, and higher relapse yeah. rates in high school years for these kids. It, nothing good is going to come of this, and we're going to be paying for it for an awfully long time, Professor Siegel. And we're also going to fall behind our rivals, you our bet. foreign rivals, you because bet. they've. They've woken up. They've got their kids back in school. Yeah. And they have been doing this for months. Yeah. And it's not and as if we're already superseded. Right. It's not as if we have an outperform. We don't have an outperformance with no. them already. So let's put our kids six to nine months, another academic year but, behind. You know, I just want your listeners to know that everything about what we're doing today is deviant. Yep. Everything is deviant. I think that this is the most deviant aspect. Of I, what we're I, I agree with you, right? I, I agree with you, Professor Siegel. And to define it down is to turn it into normal. And this is not a normal we can accept. Professor Donald Siegel from um, ASU, thank you so much. He is the Foundation Professor of Public Policy and Management and Director of the School of Public Affairs. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.
If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Michael Medved at michaelmedved.com for Town Hall. Laws matter. Yes, Americans may sometimes exceed posted speed limits, but that doesn't mean we're systemically a nation of reckless drivers. By the same token, the fact that racism and discrimination remain a stubborn factor in American life doesn't mean that such hateful behavior represents the norm or qualifies as systemic. Discrimination in employment, housing, education, and criminal justice has been unequivocally illegal for more than half a century. The people working through our elected representatives consistently choose to prohibit and punish racism, not to permit or promote it. The American system of justice isn't built around oppression and bigotry. It promises equal protection of the laws guaranteed by the 14th Amendment as a constitutional right, regardless of race. I'm Michael Medved. Publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.